founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Chris Romer, CEO and co-founder of Project Canary. As CEO of Project Canary, Chris Romer leads the company on their mission to mitigate climate change by helping the energy supply chain reduce methane emissions through continuous monitoring, accurate data, and a trusted certification process. Chris spent 24 years developing energy infrastructure and public-private partnerships with investment banks, including J.P. Morgan and Citibank, and was a leader in energy policy as a Colorado state senator from 2006. Canary's team of scientists, engineers, and seasoned industry operators have earned recognition for their uncompromising standards, including being named Best for the World 2021 B Corp. And the company just raised $111 million in their Series B round. Here to share their story and more is Chris. So Chris, thank you for being here, my friend. Good morning, Drew. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, especially the the, the scale of the impact that you all are having and, and, and hoping to keep having in the future. So I'm curious, you know, in your own words, how did this whole thing get started? Uh, well, great. I mean, like all good serial entrepreneurs, how did this one get started? Because right. this is probably authentically my uh, seventh or eighth rodeo. And <clears throat> this one has definitely been a, a handful. And it's a lot of fun to describe that. But it started, I was at another B Corp called Guild Education. <clears throat> Guild is now the largest um, human uh, productivity platform or human capital platform that's solving the gnarly problem for the 60 million Americans who don't have skills for the jobs of the future, but didn't want to always go back to college. And it's number one customers, Walmart, Taco Bell, Chipotle, and a bunch of others. And I built that company. I was employee number three and a co-founder in Guild uh, as a B Corp. And it was my daughter, Rachel, who, who is well known in the entrepreneurial sectors as a founder, who's now grown that company to a market cap of $5 billion. Um, and so it's really fun for me to disclose that I'm probably one of the few founder CEOs that was trained to be a CEO by his oldest daughter. And so for the founder community out there, you can chew on that one as an opening line. Um, but it was because Guild was solving a very gnarly problem. And, you know, great founders go into a business to solve a problem. They don't go into a business to get an exit, to get something else. Most people really mm. have like a splinter in their brain. And why are they serial entrepreneurs? Because they can't end the curiosity of how do I solve a problem. For Guild is there were lots of people who had some college and not enough skills and a lot of debt. And Guild was going to solve the ability to get your college degree with no debt. It was a very cool problem and uh, actually really fun to solve that one. And I was recruited out of that by a group of scientists in Colorado, where we're the first state and jurisdiction on the planet that requires people to measure the environmental impact of oil and gas. And it was because of my B Corp and my data experience mm. at Guild, which is why these scientists recruited me into being a co-founder of Project Canary. So like a lot of good founders, once you have your reputation of solving gnarly problems, my expertise is solving gnarly problems that sit between government and business. That's what I've done for about 40 years. 
interesting problems. Did you kind of just stumble into that or was that something you always knew you would want to bridge that gap? Well, I spent 25 years on Wall Street, specifically on the public sector side, financing things like airports, transit systems, public energy systems. And so I always dealt with the issue of what sits, what I call in the public square. <laughs> we have a private world and we have a public world. So an airport's a very good example. And airports are uniformly with minor, minor exception, owned by the public sector, but they're a big interface with the private sector. Airports don't work unless airlines can plug into them. Mm. And so my specialty is things like airports where you have to have a public good that interacts very dynamically with the private sector. So the public good in Project Canary is climate change and the air we breathe and the quality because dense energy is enormously required. If I could show you on a chart, I'd go have you all go Google up basically GDP for the last thousand years. And what you would see is that as human beings, the gross domestic product, our standard of living went through the roof. It's the ultimate J curve. Go Google it up if you haven't ever done this. Go look at what happened in about 1850. That's when the revolution of burning coal or dense energy began. And when we invented the steam engine, when we learned to leverage not just human and animal energy, when we actually learned to harness energy out of carbon, that's when the human existence began to skyrocket. Now, we now know there was a consequence to that, which is called climate change that we have to now solve. And so the gnarly problem that I wanted to solve in the public square is I don't want to diminish people's standard of living. In fact, I want to raise 2 billion people on the planet out of energy poverty. At the same time, we have this public good. We have this externality that we can only put so much carbon into the atmosphere before it will extinct our existence on this earth. And so that's what you call the ultimate gnarly problem that sits in the public square. And I'm having a blast at 63 in my seventh or eight rodeo. But boy, this is a Brahma bull. I'm riding this son of a bitch like hell. <laughs> you saved the best for last, right? What I love about what you're saying is it's been in my experience that when you look at organizations that are just for public good, nonprofits, government, education, that kind of thing, and they get so disconnected from even the private understanding of turning a profit or making it make business sense. They often have great aspirations, but so we have kind of the private capitalism company when they get detached from the public good, man, they may be doing a lot, but be damned with the consequences, right? Sure. And so it sounds like you're bringing those two together. Like, no, we really can solve great challenges and do it in a way that makes sense for people. In great capitalistic systems, and it's why we brought tons of people out of poverty, and it's why communism never worked. It's like, look, the great thing about the free market is it allocates capital efficiently. The problem with the, 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 the common square or the free market is when you have something called a free rider problem. And if I can put more carbon in the air and make a nickel or a dime more than my next partner, who's being a good steward of the planet, that's a problem. So that's where you have a free rider problem where I can cheat the system, cheat the planet mm. by being a bad actor. And then you need to bring what's known as the externality in. Um, and just a founder story is true that just in this humble way to understand this, just a family issue for me. But we actually came up with the idea for Project Canary when my brother Paul Romer won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2018. He's a very well-known economist who does a lot of thinking about big level issues. He and his co-winner, Bill wow. Nordhaus, 
were in Stockholm and we were debating this exact issue of how you use data to basically solve a free rider problem. Bill Nordhaus, Yale economist, is very well known for the cap and trade solution that's different than a carbon tax. What we're about in Project Canary is the radical transparency of your actual impact, because we know that if companies, whether it, you can name all the public, or that Shell or Equinor or BP or Exxon, if ultimately people knew when they pulled up to a gas station, the behavioral economics of each and every one of them, at some point consumers will probably work with people who want to not have that externality be hurting the planet. And that's been the journey for me is three years and going to Houston, going to Europe and learning about this problem and finding lots of authentic people in the energy industry who are interested in solving that externality on carbon in a way that's a free market solution. And so that's been a great journey for me. And it's it's kind of we've been of all my eight rodeos. This one, as I said, has been this has been a big one. Yeah. But like a good entrepreneur, I'm not going to drop the mic until we solve the problem. Yeah. For for a layman like me, someone who's not been in the world you've been in and knows the ins and outs of it and even the terminology, what would you say is the current you know hypothesis for solving this problem that you all are exploring? So it's transparency, that pricing and transparency and the ability to actually have good market data matters, that when you measure what matters, I mean, Peter Drucker said it long ago. Right. Oh, Peter Drucker is, you need to go fundamentally. You measure what matters. You can't improve things that you don't measure. You know this in your own business. You know it, whether it's in climate or whether it's in government, that when people can BS each other about whether or not, you know, it's sort of like, can you really lose weight without a scale? Mm. Like, come on, let's be honest with each other. Like, yeah. the point of it is, there's a reason measurement matters. Measurement is about holding people accountable. And so you have to set up cost-effective systems for measurement that do that. So in our world, we need to continue to have very dense energy. And that will include a lot of oil and gas and fossil fuels for years to come. What but do you we, mean by dense energy? Dense energy is molecularly dense energy, different than electrons. Ah. So there's a lot of people who believe this is all just going to electrify. I think we have a lot of evidence that's not the case. There's a lot of things where you need dense energy in gases and liquids different than electrons. Yep, there'll be a lot of batteries, a lot of electrification, a lot of renewable and that. But I happen to be kind of a, 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 a moderate Democrat that strongly believes that the transition is going to take more than five years. It's probably going to take 20 or 30 years, which means we need to radically improve the quality of the extraction and the use of carbon and soon to be hydrogen. And to do that, you have to radically measure at the molecular level. And once you put those molecules in a blockchain registry, you'll know exactly which molecules to buy because certain molecules are going to be cleaner than other molecules. And when all of that's on a blockchain registry, trust me, the market's going to work just fine. And so if we can measure these things, we can see which dense energy is better than others. It will incentivize innovation in the right direction. Is, is that part of it as well? Sure. I'm American Airlines, if I'm American Airlines and you have Project Canary verified climate attributes, I will be buying my aviation fuel, which has the lowest verified attribute related to its carbon footprint. And I guarantee you people will then flock 
you know, not everybody. There'll be price sensitive people who will always just buy the cheapest seat on American Airlines. There'll be discretionary buyers, primarily in business and first class to start, who will say, you know, I fly American Airlines because they're very thoughtful about the way they buy their verified climate attributes okay. regarding aviation fuel. And that's the transparency in the way in which markets work. And it's like, trust me, I mean, I sure. guarantee you, there isn't a, C, a good Fortune 500 CEO that doesn't think about their brand equity. So when Jamie Nyman thinks about how many people want his credit card, he knows he has a brand equity as JP Morgan and Chase that he has to protect. I don't think there's a single Fortune 500 company that would want to say, I'm going to ignore verified climate attributes in my supply chain. They're yeah. going to all want to know which are the good actors and the bad actors in their supply chain. And the only way to do that is measure it. And the measurement, I give the speech all the time, I call it the measurement economy. And the measurement economy is coming. The good news is an entrepreneur, it's actually gonna be bigger than the internet. The measurement economy in this transition to basically getting to true zero by 2050 is gonna be a bigger transition for our economy than was the internet. And I can, you can take that to the bank. So if you're an entrepreneur out there, go find your clean energy startup because it's going to be a big What I'm curious one. about is the economics of it. And I want to know what your opinion is. You know, when I think about like, hey, you have a wake-up call that organic is better than processed, right? And then you go, you go to the store and sure. you're like, all right, I want to buy organic. And then it's double or triple the price of what you were paying. For some that can afford it, it's a no-brainer. You know, they're like, sure, I'll, I'll pay triple yep. the price for my milk. And then for others are saying, I just can't afford to have, you know, to do that regularly for my family. Do you think it'll be the same way when? Sure, of course. Well. And, but let me just make it simpler. Right now in Africa, I was wor working with the folks regarding uh, in Nigeria related to their LNG cargoes, which we need them to decarbonize and lower the carbon footprint of their LNG cargoes. And sitting there with the, with the uh, minister in charge of that, explaining to me that, you know, 40% of my population doesn't have electricity. So do I get to have my entitled American life where I get to freeze them into their standard of living without electricity? Hell no. We need to get them dense energy as well and real energy, but they can't afford the same discretionary dollars yeah. I can afford in buying low carbon aviation fuel. So you're right, but we need what we need to avoid is people who are greenwashing, who claim that they're doing things that are not. And that's why the measurement economy occurs, which is we will all spend an unlimited number of dollars to save the planet. So when you say you can't buy organic, the consequences of you not buying organic are just a different consequence for you and your belief yeah. on your health. For us yeah. to fail, the issue on climate change means the extinction of the human race. Think about that. Failing climate change is the extinction of our species. So when you start to think about marginal price in which people will pay to save save the same thing, and trust me, I'm a big optimist on this. We're actually gonna solve this way faster than people think because we now know our actual ability and my children, my grandchildren and their yeah. grandchildren's ability to live now depends on me solving this problem. That's a truth. And so when you do that, you kind of get out of your brain this ability that, yeah, we need to help people in different areas pay according to their need and skill. But I guarantee you the innovation behind this is going to work. And the reason it's going to work is everybody said it's going to 10 years for us to figure out how to go find a, 
vaccine for, for COVID, we found it in eight months. Like we have the skill to solve the climate problem. We now need the economic yeah. regime and the titanic plates that have been stuck on climate change are shifting. And we're gonna solve this in less than a decade. The problem is a lot of people are gonna to have to get rid of things like their opposition to nuclear power is one of those false narratives that's got to go. Yes. There's no way to solve climate change without some level of nuclear power. And so there are a lot of people on the left and on the far right who just need to get out of their foxholes and meet each other in the middle because guess what? This is for all the marbles. Yeah. God, it feels like it feels like that is the case for almost any important issue right now is. Yeah, but come on, let's be clear. Whether or not you buy organic or not, it's not the same in solving climate change. Totally. And trust me, there's about a million people in Florida who are thinking a lot more about climate change as they just saw their foundation and their house blown apart. Sure. This is no bullshit. This is real. It's for all the marbles. And it's coming in both parties. People now realize that we work very hard with a lot of people who previously claimed that humans didn't affect climate in the Republican Party. They're now with us. They just want to do it based on market principles, which we love. We're entrepreneurs. Yeah. We're capitalists. And I think that's what excites me about the conversation around cost is I, I don't bring that up as a don't do it. It's of course we do it. But what would excite me is keeping the entrepreneurial spirit and saying, but I also think more than solving it, we could innovate to a place where it is at least comparable or only marginally more expensive than the alternative. Well, I right? guarantee you, it's the entrepreneurs of the world who are going to solve climate change. Yeah. And it's going to be a little bit more expensive, but not as bad as you think. Exactly. Like that's the great thing about that. Everybody said wind and solar wouldn't like, couldn't work. 10 years later, it's now cheaper than coal. Yes. That's what great entrepreneurs do. And it's what's so great about America, which is we just get after it and get to work. And we have people who are obsessed like I am, where you just, I'm 63 and don't really need to do this. Thank you to a few previous startups, but I can't stand looking at a gnarly problem and not enjoying thinking how to solve it and hiring 140 whip smart 20 and 30 year olds who are already kicking ass. How, and do, you, how do you go about solving complex, big issues? Just personally, like, is there a framework that you, I break it down into its components and I start one at a time or. Oh, you, you the first one is to be perfectly candid. Usually, governments and nonprofits don't solve big yeah. gnarly problems. Like you know, let's be clear. How did you know not to talk too much about him because Elon's got a lot of pluses and minuses, but he didn't take no for an answer yeah. on the electric car. He just powered ahead. And so, I mean, trust me, we went broke. I got on this one all the way down to where I had one employee. After we did our kind of parents and family round, we basically. Got, had to let everybody go, got down to one employee, had to recapitalize. Trust me, this thing easily should have died six times. But like a lot of people, you have to have the willingness not to take no for an answer. When you want to solve a problem, you can't get let little shit get in the way. And just because you're running out of money doesn't mean you can take no for an answer. And you just find a way. You just work a little harder, got a little deeper and you keep charging at it, but that's where it's like a splinter in your brain. You don't let people tell you you can't do it. And to go from being broke two years ago to raising 111 million from the Canadian pension fund is, uh, that's a journey. And uh, it, you know, sometimes you just right place, right time. But generally what I find is people have grit and persistence and the willingness to know you're onto something. And look, I've been a part of other startups where after raising 40, 40 million, it was just like, no, we just missed it. Sorry, we just, 
this one didn't work. But when you know you've got a good one, you don't stop. You know, what the opposite of what you'd expected. What did you look at that said, no, this is different than the one that's just. No, we knew. A hard, hard stop. I knew the measurement economy was coming okay. and I knew all of this. We were going to bring the externality of carbon into the economic equation. And we knew Colorado was first. And just because we screwed up in the first two rounds of our company and our hardware didn't work, I knew the investment hypothesis was unimpeachable. I knew it was real. And just because we messed up in our early execution, you just got to take the write off and say, damn, that hurt. I fall <laughs> off the bike. Just because I fall off my bike and I got like a week's worth of road rash, you just got to crawl in a ball, have a whiskey, you know, get over it, say, wow, that really hurt. Then you have to have the ego and determination just to get the get the fuck back on the bike and ride. Yeah. Do you think all the early experiences you had leading up to this allowed you to have a more firm resolve in that moment? Well, sure. I mean, having done five or six startups before, I wasn't surprised that there's a difference between missing the investment hypothesis or missing a little bit of tweak on product market fit. Hmm. Um, but we knew the TAM as well as a product market fit. And even though we missed on execution and honestly, some personality issues, those were noise, painful, because it meant, you know, my position in the cap table was very different than had I been successful in closing that first series A. But if you got a splinter in your brain that you're going to solve, you don't let the little shit get in the way. Yeah. And having to be humble enough to say that hurt, and it's like falling off your bike with serious road rash, you just got to get the hell back on the bike and ride and believe in your vision. What is wrong is when you know, you know your investment hypothesis is wrong, then you get off the bike and find a new bike. Yeah. But that wasn't here. The issue here was execution. There's a difference between execution versus missing. You know, we found the right market. We executed poorly in the first year. Two different issues. That's so helpful. I've asked that question a lot around how do you know if the idea is flawed or if you know you just need to stick it out. And I've heard several versions of that, but that was very, very helpful in the way I articulated. I, I could write a book on that with Canary. It's, it's so challenging in the moment, right? Because sure. uh, the only thing I think about is it reminds me of Ray Dalio's idea of first principles, right? They're like, what is actually the thing not working here? Like you said, is it just something superficial that we could fix, like the execution or the strategy, or is the underlying assumption actually wrong? And if that's wrong, then we're in real trouble. Well, one sometimes it's the right. You're just too early, and and you know, like I this thing of what I call the clean energy transition is a hundred foot tsunami. I was a hundred percent positive just because of my I'd been around politics and life, and I knew this tsunami was a hundred foot tsunami. And so I knew that it would come. It's, but it's like any big wave. You can see the wave coming. It's just you're too early and you expend all your energy trying to catch it. And then you run out of energy. And I was pretty sure that if we just re reloaded, took the right down in capital, recapitalized, we we're pretty sure that the 100 foot tsunami was coming. And sure enough, it was. We were just early. We were early and poorly executed. So the first question is are you just early? You've seen the right wave. You're just too early for the wave to catch the wave. That's a real phenomena. And a lot of people have lost, I mean, you know, timing's a lot. And we got lucky enough that we had the grit and persistence and my co-founder and I had to let our staff go, just look at each other, the two of us, 
in a room for three months as we as we redid the redid the company. But we were we were hundred percent sure that the wave was coming. We just knew we had poorly executed in the first wave. Yeah. Uh, what encouragement would you give to the person? So let me back up a second. There, there is, and there should be plenty, plenty of businesses that are, that are tackling small problems or are small iterations on things already out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus there's the one who's got the splinter in the brain, as you put it, that it feels like David versus Goliath. Right. Where you're like, wow, whatever I'm trying to solve is massive. And we might be the first, or we might be, you know, on the front lines of trying to figure out this thing that we haven't figured out as a, as a culture yet. How do we go about pro approaching that type of business? Right. Like, yeah, I mean, two, there's two sides to that. One of which is my my niche of what I'm trying to solve is too small and not really a big enough TAM, not really a big enough opportunity. And then you got to think a little broader. What do I know and how can I take? I know this one little thing is broken. What other things is it affecting so that I can be a big enough opportunity to make sense of it? The same other thing is true is solving climate change is not the right splinter in the brain. There was the issue of, no, we had an issue that methane is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide. Measuring methane was the low-hanging fruit in climate change. So the idea for us wasn't solving climate change. It was finding the most unintended consequence in solving climate change. So you've got to sometimes expand the scope of what you're doing. A lot of times you got to shrink Interesting. what you're doing to find the low hanging fruit in the bigger problem. Yeah, man, it makes me think of a, a few different companies, but one in particular that is leveraging blockchain technology and things like that. Same thing, they're like, it's too big of a goal for us to say, let's improve yep. all of the medical system. But there was this very obvious thing, which was patient transparency, and, you know, like notes and doctor's notes and all like, how can we like make that experience much better? And that's one of the big yep. steps forward for that industry. And that sounds similar to what you're saying. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best. There are a lot better people with tech backgrounds. My background is political and finance. And so I brought one skill set to a big problem. Thank goodness my co-founder brought the other side of the equation. And, you know, as you know, one of the other biggest predictors of success is picking the right co-founders <laughs> and that, yeah. you know, there's a whole other book to write on that. Um, yeah. Well, talk to me about, talk to me about this for a second, because this is something I've found that even personal friends of mine have found to be very freeing that we all assume we need to be the technical founder that like, if we have the right idea and we're to, we're to help this business grow, we have to be the technical expert. And yeah. often you find, no, you can surround yourself, whether it be co-founder or staff, with the technical expertise and you still have a very important role, whether it's the vision or the connections you make or the ability to raise capital or strategy. But talk to me about that. You don't always have to be the technical co-founder. I would argue co-founders come in lots of frames. And my expertise is understanding markets, government, and how to solve big issues. My co-founder's experience is very scientific. You know, Stanford MBA, as well as a degree in, in earth sciences from Stanford. So he brought the technical side. I think what's really important about founders is that there be a whole bevy of skills involved there, but there has to be an enormous amount of respect for each other's skill sets. And where I see founder conflict is people have different skill sets, but they don't respect each other because it's really the summation of two plus two equals six. And so between Will Foyles and I, it was really two plus two is six because I didn't know shit about science and methane and he did. I knew a lot about how to make things work at government level and in Washington, and he respected that. 
And so together, I mean, he's still teaching me. I love about this one is I now get to play science and, and I get to play the science guy. But it's just because I've learned the science in the three years and Will has learned the politics and we respected each other for our expertise. Um, and, and so if you have two co-founders who just are on top of each other, that doesn't always work. It's good to bring different skill sets. Yeah. And if I had to say in my humble experience, and that's not biased, I see a lot of very technical co-founders failing because they don't bring in people with commercial expertise. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the technical genius uh, that doesn't understand really how to market it or who it's for, but they have they're geeked out on the idea, right? And then it, it takes a, a special kind of brain to understand where it fits in the world and how to grow that. Well, I didn't trust that. I literally didn't know a lot about this. I know a lot about investment banking, a lot about project finance. Who taught me how to truly be an entrepreneur was actually my 32-year-old daughter. Talk to me about that. Oh, she's, she's just she's just badass. Like, I mean, <laughs> talk about fundraising, talk about like just how to put it together, talk about the way on growth mindset. I like she completely changed the way I think about commerce um, because I came out of 25 years on Wall Street, very successful. But as we as I was employee number three for her in, in her company, Guild Education, she had to change the way I solved problems. And that was a pretty cool thing that not many people in their at that time, mid fifties, get to have their oldest daughter help you really understand what growth mindset is and design thinking. Was, I didn't know shit about that. Was it and easier? Was it easier to 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 have some of those mindset shifts because it was your daughter, or harder because it, the advice no, from your daughter? Hundred percent, hundred percent harder. Yeah, because it was all family dynamics. But <laughs> I, I'm pretty. I I'm a, I have enough of a of a, a healthy ego, but not an ego so big that it required me that I couldn't learn from my oldest daughter. A few more questions. I know that you're a busy man and got a lot of things ahead of you today, but I'd love just to learn from your, your political skill set for a minute, because in my opinion, politics gone bad is when we cannot or don't even try to communicate with people of differing opinions. Sure. But just like you were talking about with a co-founder, if we can actually learn the skill of hearing from you, valuing your opinion, your skill set, even yeah. though it differs, man, business can operate so much smoother. So I don't even need you to comment on politics, but more so with what you're doing now in Project Canary, I assume part of your skill set is getting different entities to communicate that typically would. Yeah, I mean, what I will say is what I've learned in 63 years is that my vision of the truth is partial. It's pretty educated, sometimes even wise, but my vision is partial. And that's mm -hmm. because I don't sit in my opponent's shoes. And if I really can authentically put myself in their shoes, then all of a sudden it shifts a little bit like, oh, my perspective shifted a little bit and I need to respect that. Like I understand that, you know, as, a, as somebody who came up out of uh, some level of privilege and others, I need to understand what is different. I went to good schools. I did that. I need to understand differently what it means to face that utility bill. Because if I don't understand that that utility bill in my life is a pretty small bill on my monthly paycheck, like, I just don't think that much about it. I think a lot about, as best I can, what does it mean to have that utility bill be 10 and 20% of your pay-home check? And so I'm using that as an example because sometimes it could be so easy. And this is, unfortunately, for the environmental community, often what happens. They want everybody to pay 10 or 20% more to be green. But that sucks that that 10 or 20% more comes directly out of my entertainment budget or my ability to feed a family. 
And so all I would say is that, you know, I find people in politics and life who are not very helpful are people who are arrogant because of their narcissistic mm. ability to only see the world through their set of eyes. And what I have, you know, I'm a middle child in the family of seven, many of whom are pretty talented. I've learned to put myself in other people's shoes and that's given me perspective to be effective. Yeah. Can't imagine, you know, a more profitable skill in life and in business. You know, if you want to have a healthy connection with your children or your spouse, being able to put yourself in their shoes and understand their perspective. Same with business. You can't bullshit that. Like, what do you mean? You can't say, oh, look at it from my wife's perspective. No, you really have to look at it. That's a, that you have to really shift mm. your brain. And trust me, I don't do it all the time and I fail a lot and I have a lot of humility about this, but I really do think a lot about how does that feel from somebody else's perspective. And it makes me a decent manager. It makes me a very different CEO because I am not a autocratic CEO. I was just laughing this morning, how much, <laughs> how much authority and yeah. much time. I have to spend a lot of my time reining in people who are executing things without my permission, which is what I friggin' love. The fact that most of my job is taking all my mini entrepreneurs who are out there blasting away because I tell them, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And every once in a while I said, well, on that one, you probably shouldn't ask my opinion. <laughs> but I'd never punish. I just say, on that one, you probably need a little bit more wisdom before you ask for forgiveness. Um, but it is just as an example because I don't bring a narcissistic approach to being CEO, yeah. which unfortunately too many CEOs do. Um, most of my job is reining people in. I think a lot of other CEOs spend all their time trying to encourage people to get out there and take risk. It's one of the hardest things. If I had to say, having mm. taken a lot of failure in life, one thing I have failed so friggin' much, having run for mayor and lost a mayor's race, having blown up some other, other things, failure is just a part of growth. And because I've failed a lot, I know how to teach people to not be afraid to fail because most people don't achieve what they want in life because of fear of failure. Like what's that going to look in on TikTok or what is that going to look like on Facebook? Oh my God, <laughs> I have failed on the front page of a yeah. newspaper where 2 million people said, man, that was a lousy race for mayor, but I learned a lot. And if there's one thing I could teach every founder on this phone is don't be afraid to fail. Failing is just part of life. Mm. If you don't fail, you're not in the arena. Get in the friggin' arena and take it down. And yeah, you'll you'll get off that Brahma bowl and you'll get your ass kicked. Trust me, that's when you learn the most. And then you'll stand up, dust yourself off, say, wow, the next Brahma bowl I ride, I'm gonna ride a little different. That spin mood she had caught me. I'm not gonna get caught next time on the spin mood. So get in the get in the arena and learn to fail. It's an opportunity, right? We talked about ego earlier. Like we have to have we have to have an ego, meaning we have to have confidence, yet we can also have too much of an ego that is more uh, insecurity in disguise, if, if I would say. And that moment is almost like a moment to knock that stuff away and not put it back on. Yep. Would you agree? Like, Yeah, but you, then that's why that's why great things like YPO and their other groups and like we have so many things where we have a mask on. You have to learn to take your mask off. Yeah. You have to go put yourself in circumstances. Where, yeah, because I get it. Sometimes being a CEO is a performance art and you do have to have a confidence about it. You have to have the humility to take the mask off 
and know how to call your own bullshit. Mm. And I just, this thing on failure is a big deal mm. because every once in a while, there are all these little decisions you can make that increase the probability to avoid failure. And that's not always the right choice <laughs> because what you really should be managing is the highest probability of success, which also often increases the probability of failure. And once you learn failure is not as bad as you think, it allows you to go a little bit deeper and jump off the high dive with a little bit more authority. Mm. And now we're getting pretty philosophical, but look, it's easy for me to say, because I've had a lot of success in life. And um, yeah, I got later in life with some financial security, was able to take on failure. And I don't want to be preachy to those entrepreneurs or founders who are facing a different circumstance, but I do find in coaching a lot of younger people that the fear of failure is often what holds them back. It's not even so much financial. It's this friggin' Facebook quality of, yeah. like, I just walk on Facebook. How many people post like, wow, look at how much I screwed up yesterday. I never see that Facebook post, which is, wow, here's all the stupid mistakes I made yesterday. I don't see that on TikTok and Instagram. I see everybody talking about how cool they are. Mm. And the truth is we're all pretty flawed. And we all ought to put our flaws on Facebook and TikTok, not our successes because all we're doing is bullshitting each other because every day I make a ton of mistakes yeah. and I ought to be putting those on LinkedIn, not just my successes, because it would help us avoid this perception by a lot of young people that we didn't fail. Oh my God. If you looked at the failures in my life, some of them were epic. <laughs> oh, that, I think that's why many people are enjoying podcasts, right? Like it, I know it's why some people have enjoyed this is because if you talk to someone long enough, you can't help but get, hopefully the real story and the real story I've found always involves ups and downs, steps forward, steps back, mistakes made, genius moves made all together. Right. Uh, I have one friend who just researched the amount of failures famous people have made like throughout history. And like you said, it's always staggering when you really look closer. How many did Walt Disney truly have? How many did, you know, uh, Einstein have? And it's like, it's, un it's, it's a huge amount. Right. Uh, but they developed what you did, which is some version of grit, some version of. Yeah, we're going to go, go study somebody on that. Go study Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. And man failed his whole life until he saved the union. Wow. I'd say he's a pretty cool guy. He saved the union. Shit. That's worth going in the history book. The rest of his life, failure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's really good. Man, what's the one thing that excites you most about what you're doing right now? Oh, just the wisdom of all these, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 63, <laughs> yeah, probably the next closest. And like the average age of the employee is probably like 28, 29. Just the amount of whip smart activity and the fact that I get to learn a bunch of science and math and, you know, things, <laughs> things I never thought I'd get to do at 63. And so like I'm learning every day. Um, and I also think we're authentically, um, yeah, we're, we, it's every, this happened at Guild and is now having again in category. We're actually getting to build a new category of commerce at the same time to be the first mover. Mm. And to get a chance to do that twice in life is something that I feel very grateful for. Absolutely. And I may screw this one up. I may fail. But to authentically be able to build a category and actually be a first mover in a category twice in my lifetime, back to back, that's a gift for which I'm always grateful. It makes me, my wife is a little confused why I keep wanting to do it. But to be honest, it's addictive. It's worse than coffee. 
I would, I don't know that I would know how to get up every day if I didn't think I was working on some gnarly problem that deserved my attention. And the fact that we get to build this whole new category that we call the measurement economy, which is to really solve climate change by measuring every molecule and everything on its carbon footprint is a pretty cool thing. That's what gets me up every day. And um, I'm putting all the chips on. I'm going into a board meeting with my board on Tuesday, and I'm going to put all the chips on red again because there is a, and yes, it will increase the risk of failure, but it will definitely increase the probability that we'll succeed in bending the arc of climate change. And that's what we do. Wow. And good news is the investors can vote for it or against it, but my job is to put the chips on red and tell them, let's roll. Yeah. Get on that Brahma boat. Time to ride. Something you just said, we'll end on this. You said, when you increase the chances of success, you increase the chances of failure, right? Is there, there's no getting around there, is there? Is that the, is that the tough news we need to swallow? Uh, just people who don't, entrepreneurs or boards or investors who always want their cake and eat it too. I want a 10% yield, but I also want to make 10x bullshit. That world doesn't, yeah. that, that world doesn't <laughs> exist. I want no risk. I want only reward. Yeah, yeah. And that's a lot of what we do. And it's why getting rid of the fear of failure is what a lot of times you have to do. Because if we get that 10x return for our investors, I guarantee you we're going to have an impact on climate change. And that's why we all showed up. We didn't show up to give people a bond yield. Um, that's for another business. And it's not what I'm interested in. But anyhow, well, nice to get to know you and all those founders. And I respect the hell out of founders. It's about the hardest life. But boy, it's a satisfying life because, yeah, you're going to fail. It's just a fact. Any great, you're not worth it. In fact, before Guild, my daughter and I built another company where I was the president and she was my one of my third or fourth employees. And we failed. And we learned everything in that first company to do. And the reason Guild is now worth $5 billion is we learned everything in the first failure. We applied to the second, the first of which she walked in and said, okay, this time I'm in charge and you're working for me. And that was the first thing we changed in because she's actually a better CEO than I am. And so um, all I can say is you actually probably can't succeed in life until you failed. And so if you haven't failed yet, you probably are underperforming. That would be my prediction. Wow. Hey, that's the bomb of the episode right there. Chris, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm going to let you go, but I appreciate it. Go get them. See ya. Thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.